Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, the holidays are here and the soaps have big plans for some big Christmas moments. So on Days of Our Lives, Kayla and Steve will have a close encounter at the hospital while he's dressed as Santa, no less. (laughs) And Ben and Ciara will share some stolen moments in jail. Um, On Young and the Restless, Zach Tinker is heading back to... Genoa City is Fenn, and Olivia Allen Lynn will air again as Faith. Um, and our new issue was filled with holiday features with the stars sharing their favorite memories. We have photo spreads of Christmas's past and so much more. What I am most excited about during Christmas week is for sure the Christmas Carol-themed episode that GH is going to deliver on December 23rd. Uh, I'm saying, I'm like, no matter what happens with preemptions, that is going to be on the 23rd. Okay, good to know. Um, so we're going to see Finn as Scrooge and Ava, Jocelyn, and Obrecht as uh, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and yet to come. And there are just like so many fun castings. And one of the best things about working at this magazine is that we often get like the first look at photos of episodes mm-hmm. like this. <clears throat> and I was like giddy looking at all of the great images that we have to look forward to from this episode Sean Reeves, who is the show's costume designer, did such a phenomenal job. And we have a big uh, feature coming up with him talking about the wardrobe for this episode, renting period costumes from theater companies across the country and designing and constructing some of the looks in-house as well. He uh, said he basically didn't sleep for a month preparing for this show. uh, But the effort, I think, is really a huge payoff. And uh, I know just a little while ago on the podcast, I was like, meh. Uh-huh. I don't like special right. episodes. Oh, yeah, you were. Um, but it's been a long time since GH has undertaken something like this, and and I'm all in. Uh, and there is another feature in the new issue related to GH that I wanted to mention, and that's an interview with the production designer who uh, gives us a really interesting look into the newly redesigned Quartermain Mansion, which is also going to be de- debuting around the holidays. So many interesting tidbits in there um, and some... Uh, Gorgeous photos as well. Mm-hmm. And the redesign um, was really based on the original schematics of the mansion. They dug the blueprints out of storage and used them for reference, which I thought was really, really cool. Oh, so cool. It is such a great story. And I really loved reading, you know, just how they did it all and, um, you know, how instrumental Frank Valentini was in that, mm-hmm. the show's executive producer, and also just seeing the photos of the new Q Mansion. Um, You know, I have so many good soap memories tied into the Christmas episodes. Like, I loved them (laughs) when I was a viewer. And not like I don't love them now, but I will say that my standout memories are probably more from the 80s. You know, the sets were always so decorated, and it just really sucked you into the holiday spirit. And, you know, actually in this issue, we spoke to some of the set decorators and production designers about what goes into bringing Christmas to life in each soap town. And I thought that was so interesting, too. I mean, something that didn't make it in, but I did ask um, Tom Early at Days where he said he just keeps like he just bought wrapped boxes at some point and they like keep them in storage. And that's one of the things that they pull out, you know, things like you don't really think about. Right, right, right. Um Another feature we have in this issue is a look back on the hottest headlines of 2019. And I have to say, wow, did a lot go on. Um, You know, but I think for so many people who follow soaps, we will always remember 2019 for a really sad reason, which is that on February 3rd, we lost Christoph St. John, beloved for his decades as Neil on YNR, and he passed away at the age of 52. Yeah. On on some level, I, I still can't believe he's gone. Like, I feel his absence really deeply on the show, and I can still remember just how shocked and saddened I was uh, when I got the news. Absolutely. I mean, he was 
such a fixture on Y&R and held such an important place in Genoa City and also just on the landscape of daytime. And, you know, the ripple effects of his death were just so enormous on screen and off. And, you know, it's very strange. The other day I came across a journal that I kept in like 1994. And in it, I had an entry that said something like, hung out with Christoph St. John tonight. You know, it was like an Emmy party or something. And he was such a nice, cool guy. And I feel everyone who came in contact with him has some story like that. Like he just touched so many lives. And, uh, you know, it's just unbelievable to think he's gone. Um, you know, another shocking loss was Luke Perry dying of a stroke, and he was also 52. You know, Luke appeared on both Another World and Loving before he became a worldwide sensation as Dylan on Beverly Hills 90210. You know, not to mention he'd been appearing on Riverdale, yeah. so his soap ties ran really deep. Well, there were uh, also like a good number of casting shockers this year, I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest one has to be YNR's Phyllis switch with Gina Tognoni exiting to pave the way for Michelle Stafford to return. Mm-hmm. That was a jaw dropper. Um, and it had the ripple effect of Michelle leaving GH, where she'd been playing Nina, who was then recast with Guiding Light alums and Theo Watros. You know, I'm going to go with Billy Miller leaving GH as my biggest casting shocker. I mean, that was really huge mm-hmm. as well. You know, also big was the revolving door at Young and Restless. Um, you know, we saw Michelle Morgan come back versus Hillary's Ghost. Now she's in a new role, Amanda. Um, Alice Hunter's Carrie, Jason Canelo's Arturo, Noemi Gonzalez's Mia wrapped up their runs, Lauren Lazzana was out, and Daniel Goddard, Kane, you know, he was very surprisingly let go. Yeah. Um, and then we saw the returns of Elizabeth Hendrickson as Chloe, Greg Rickard as Kevin, Melissa Claire Egan as Chelsea, and our guest today, Doug Davidson as Paul. Now, really, uh, this sto- story with Doug Davidson really heated up, um, you know, Eric Braden was particularly vocal on Twitter about Doug not being on the canvas. And, you know, when this new regime came in, one of the first things they did was bring Doug back. And, you know, I think it was really important to both the show and the viewers, you know, he is the longest running cast member, um, for them to see Paul in Genoa City again. Absolutely. Like, he is just a fixture on that show. Uh, and and uh, it was only right that we see him again and meant a lot to Uh, people on camera and off camera to have him back in Genoa City. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get him on the phone to talk about his return and just his past and the wonderful four decades he has spent on the show. Hi, Doug. Hi there. How are you guys? Good. How are you? Fine. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I'm getting ready to go to London. Oh, fabulous. Lucky you. So um, I'm uh, a bit scattered brain-wise. Oh, okay. Even more so than I normally. <laughs> Are you packed? Well, that's why I'm scattered. I'm kind of packed. Okay. I've got, you know, kilts are heavy. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't like 10 know. Like pounds. Wool. And accoutrement, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. Plus, you know, a little, little knife in the sock and stuff. Dirt. You have to pack that. They won't. They won't let you carry that on. <laughs> Discriminatory against kilts. <laughs> oh. So uh, you guys are doing well. Yes, we are. Thank you. And we are. As it uh, as it's not snowing yet, is it? A little bit here and there. A little bit. Yeah, but not. Really. Yeah, it's not sticking. Yeah, it's New York City. It doesn't really stick that much here, <laughs> right? Yeah. So all good. Um, well, we're so happy you're joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. And we are going to just take a look back on the life of Doug Davidson here. Totally. So we're going to start. You were born and raised in Glendale, a suburb of Los Angeles. So did you grow up? Yeah, I was actually born in Glendale, raised in La Cunada, Flintridge. Okay. So were you exposed to people in showbiz or did you come to your interest in performing separately? Uh, not exposed. I, uh, my dad was a Caltech man and, uh, he was a chemical engineer and it was really my sister that, uh, started the whole, um, showbiz thing. She loved Disney films. So she sent in a Polaroid, this is years ago for a, uh, a movie called horse in the gray flannel suit. The book was the year of the horse and she got called in. And she did a screen test with, uh, oh, I'm not going to think of his name now, a teenager that wore tennis shoes. He's a big movie star now. And he's married to Goldie Hawn. And his Kurt name Russell? is... Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, yeah. 
But she was taller than Kurt Russell, so she didn't get the role she said. But I mean, it was it was like a Hollywood story. It was a Polaroid and then uh, an audition. So from our little house on Berkshire. So she went into modeling and got um, modeling agency uh, Eileen Ford and Nina Blanchard. I think I'm not sure if they still exist. I know Nina Blanchard doesn't, but uh, the Ford agency might. Pretty impressive and, there, though. Um, so that was my entry into it. She uh, she had me um, take an acting class uh, as an elective in high school when I was a freshman and she was a senior. And instead of doing wood shop, metal shop, or all that kind of stuff, and uh, uh, she knew I I love movies and I had a hat box growing up and I I really live uh, you know the the, the helicopter guy or the army man or the fireman or what have you. And um, all the Disney films and all the classic films. And so it, it really was a, a, a natural extension. And from then on, I was kind of like uh, sucked into the whole thing. You uh, a, yeah. I had a successful, uh, you know, high school um, theatrical run and then, uh, college and then from college uh, I, I quit as a sophomore and uh, got into a professional acting class that um, we went to three nights a week we I met me um, she ended up joining but that's where I met um, Rick Springfield who uh, was, this would have been 74 75 somewhere in there like that and we've been fast friends ever since that's awesome. And she came in, and um, uh, he was uh, he was in the acting class because he was contractually uh, locked out of the music business. So he, that's what happened there. And then uh, he was signed to a contract uh, to Universal, and ended up getting uh, uh, released from uh, being locked out. And uh, I think he did two albums. Uh, one was Wait for Night, and the other one was Working Class Dog. And then after that was on its, the Jesse's Girl was on its way up the charts, then he got uh, General Hospital. And those worked hand in hand, and then uh, his career took off. And when I originally was on YNR, he was my karate partner. So there's there's footage of that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I would love when, to see when that. When Paul was yeah. in a karate class or something. Yeah, so I haven't <laughs> seen it since. I don't know. It had to be 1980, 79, somewhere years and years and years ago. But, um, so um, you were in this professional acting class in 1974 and, of course, joined YNR in 78. Like, what were you doing in between? Yeah. Like, what what kind of uh, gigs were you booking? Well, uh, mostly modeling stuff um, because I started the modeling after uh, when I was a senior in high school. And I did a... Um, a Vogue layout in 1973. I think it was, think it was May, the May issue of Vogue. And uh, it was um, older woman, much younger man. And boy, even. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, I, I, I have pictures. I've posted them. I think they're on my Instagram, so you can see. Uh, uh, and it created quite a bit of stir. And uh, Andy Warhol was interested, and he sent his guys out, and I met with them. And uh, unfortunately, I was as innocent as I looked. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that, that wasn't something they pursued. And um, I was driving taxi, and I, had, I was in a taekwondo class. And it was a taekwondo class during the day because I was uh, driving taxi all night. So in the class were, were two people, a restaurant manager and Mark Lambert, who was um, the uh, husband of Victoria Mallory, who at that time was playing Leslie Brooks. And the restaurant manager got me to quit my uh, taxi cab driving. So I was waiting tables and bartending, which was a whole heck of a lot easier. <laughs> and I got more money as, as well. So that worked out. And then Mark and I became fast friends. And as a favor to him, they were having car issues, so we drove out 
to uh, Television City to pick up uh, Vicky, and um, uh, John Conboy was walking out as we were walking in, and uh, they introduced me, and I didn't really pay any attention. And a couple of weeks later, he said he'd like to see me for a particular role. So I took my sister and uh, and Rick because I was nervous about it. They didn't go in, but they went to Belgium City with me. And uh, I read for the role. I didn't think I got it because it was not my best work. And um, a few Sundays later, I got a call from uh, the wardrobe person saying, you're in on Tuesday. Uh, we need to talk about wardrobe. And I said, I'm in on Tuesday. <laughs> so I had a manager at the time that uh, didn't give me the call. And uh, uh, Did he so remain your no manager? That was, uh, n- no, <laughs> actually he didn't. Which was also fortuitous too, because then I was able to get out of all the uh, uh, commissions that uh, if he took the booking would have oh, yeah. uh, required me to pay. So. Yeah, so that worked out too. <laughs> but um, And then the rest, you know, um, my first year was uh, pretty spotty. And it was with um, uh, Erica Hope, who was the Nikki at the time. And um, they let her go, and they brought Melody in. And uh, um, it changed the whole, you know, Bill was crazy about uh, Mel and the new Nikki and ran with that. And uh, then Eric came on board, I think, uh, 1980. So, and then... Then everything just uh, started rolling. Well, let's go back to the beginning. I mean, that's like a Lana Turner story, you know, getting discovered like in a parking lot. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Right. Um, so here you are, you know, this is your first really big gig. Um, so were you nervous? Like, what was it like for you during that first? Oh, yes, conference? of course. I mean, I had been studying and I had experience um, um, in in school and, uh, you know, little bit parts here and there professionally. Um, so I was, I was, uh, ready to go, but it was live on tape then. So you'd come in for a table read, uh, I think at like four four fifteen or three thirty or something like that. And, uh, then show up at nine or 10 o'clock and we tape it from three to three thirty, if I remember correctly. So yeah, my first day, um, I was pretty, uh, pretty nervous because, you know, it's, they don't stop for anything and, uh, there's no edits, no nothing. Yeah. So it was like live, t- live television. Um, are there any like memorable mishaps or flubs that you can recall from the live to tape um, era? Well, I remember they used to, uh, Jean Cooper used to face the clock because she could tell, uh, she'd read the clock on the wall and find out how quickly or, you know, so she, she was pretty, pretty much the anchor for our, uh, our, our production even back then. And, um, they would break a camera to do a tag for a commercial. And, um, I was waiting to do a scene on stage and there was a scene, uh, between, uh, uh, Greg and Snapper, and they slammed the door, and the picture slid down off the <laughs> off the wall onto the floor. I mean, it was it was pretty hysterical. I mean, we never we would never let that happen today. But uh, they just kept on plowing through, and so I mean, you stop for nothing. That was uh, that was just the way it was. And then they'd send the uh, that that. Uh, tape, they'd uh, satellite it to uh, New York or fly it or whatever they they did in those days. And uh, so those were the kind of flubs you just didn't you didn't stop for. Spilled drinks, anything like that. You just uh, kept going. And I forget, I think I think we changed when we went to an hour. So that was the that was the moment in which. Uh, it slowed down a little bit. We we did do some editing. When the when the real magic happened was when Wes Kenny came uh, on board, and I'm guessing that was around 1981. And John Conboy went on to do uh, Capital. Mm-hmm. 
So it was interesting. Somebody sent me on um, um, on either Twitter or Instagram or something a link to the first episode. And when I started in '78, the Fosters and the Brooks were uh, um, mainstays, and so I recognized all the sets. It was five years prior to my arrival, but um, uh, I was. It was the first time I had seen those sets. Uh, looking back, um, and then I noticed there were elements in the Brooks house where they used the front door for the Newman house, and the, there was an oval window by the piano that they put in the entry in the Newman house, and the stairway I think was uh, used in the Williams house. So it was kind of funny to see those elements, the set elements, to be uh, repurposed. To yeah, a different family. Yeah. Um, now Paul was kind of a bad boy in the beginning. Um, he what was. You, yeah. So, like, what do you remember about the early years of Paul? Well, the, um, uh, you know, this, this, I think, I think Melody spread this because she wasn't around then. <laughs> but um, the, the, the then Nikki, uh, Erica Hope, gave Paul um, VD. That's, so, that's a big story. Um, <laughs> yeah. That was a big story. And, um, so uh, we resolved that, you know, I was walking into the Allegro all fuming because she was working at the Allegro, and, uh, which was uh, the, the restaurant there. Um, I think Pierre's became the Allegro. And um, so that was the summer of, that was my first summer. And then the second summer, um, uh, Nikki was... Uh, with the doctor, and I want to say Scott, and I was the I was the bad boyfriend, and uh, the doctor student was the girl, the the good boyfriend, and both Snapper and Greg were trying to get Nikki to go with the the good guy and stay away from me, but it didn't didn't work out that way. <laughs> <laughs> the magnetic pull of Paul year, was too great. Yeah, then my first year uh, in an hour. In the hour show, uh, Bill decided to uh, uh, bring in my family, and the whole I had no idea any of this was going on, but I got a call from Ed Scott, who was our producer at the time, and he said, uh, Listen, the kid that uh, is doing this role can't come in. Would you mind coming in to read for uh, uh, a father they're putting on uh, uh, taped tests? So I, I tested five guys, and I didn't know this at the time, but um, uh, they were casting the father for my family. Oh. And uh, it, it already worked with Carolyn Conwell, so I think she was cast. But I had no idea that uh, any of this was going down. It was the first time that I felt absolutely no pressure for my 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 work because it was not live on tape. It was I had five different guys. Uh, testing for my father, and uh, so each performance was uh, uh, completely different. And it was—I knew I wasn't being judged uh, because they were looking at the other person. So it was the first time that I really got my sea legs uh, in terms of uh, performing there. So that had to be—I I would guess—some sometime in 1979 before uh, we went to the hour. And then I later found out um, that uh, uh, it was Bill's idea to bring in my family. He said, you always build from inside, meaning I was on the show and established. And so that's how they were going to bring in my family. And um, back to your original question through all that was that there was a girl playing April that was uh, uh, unwed mother. And they let her go and hired Cynthia Eilbacher because we were more the same age. And then they made me the, uh, the dirty slum, the dirty scum that got April pregnant. <laughs> and that was the, uh, that was my first hour storyline where, uh, uh, I didn't want to take responsibility for the baby. And so, yeah, that was the, that was the bad guy, Paul. Um, so Paul really like became sort of a leading character throughout the, the transition from 30 to 60 minutes and you had more stories, oh, yeah. more episodes. Do you remember feeling uh, 
I don't know, like a responsibility now. It's twice the workload in a way. Do you remember that being a, a good transition <clears throat> um, or a hard one? Uh, you know, it was, it was uh, uh, an awesome uh, transition. And uh, I mean, part of Jill's, Bill's genius was um, he could read the, the kind of person you were and and what your triggers were and and he he would write for uh uh genie that way and eric that way and melody that way and and me that way and in fact anybody who ended up staying there was a he connected somehow on a non-verbal level and i think i was pretty naive in in the way show business worked and so I was just trying to give, um, you know, the best performance every day that I, I possibly could. I do remember it being, uh, you know, four and five days a week nonstop. I mean, it was that, it was that crazy schedule where you, uh, you come in and, uh, uh, our, our schedule changed to facilitate staggered calls, which really helped. But in those days, everybody would come in at 8 o'clock, we'd rehearse all day, and then uh, we'd tape the same way, not live on tape, but pretty much continuously within the two hours at the end of the day. So everybody was there all day long. And when Wes came, we had staggered calls. We did uh, uh, block and tape. It was it was a lot easier to, to handle. But it, it is like... Um, I've never done Broadway, but I would guess that's all you do when you're doing it is, uh, you know, eight shows a week or whatever. Uh, and it, it is, it is nonstop. The, the one disadvantage is it's a new script every day. So you've got, uh, the responsibility of, of learning all that dialogue and then, uh, uh, performing the, the next day. So I didn't think about, um, the pressure or the, uh, any of those aspects. Uh, and I don't recall that, uh, anyone pushed me toward that either. They gave us pretty, pretty, at least me, as I recall, pretty free reign to, uh, explore and do, uh, what we were hired to do. And, uh, you know, it all led up to, um, uh, going from fifth to number one in a period of four or five years, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, how would you describe your relationship with Bill Bell? Well, it, my original relationship started when, you know, he was writing from Chicago. So my first two and a half years, I guess, um, I rarely saw him and it was like hardly ever. Uh, because he was always writing from Chicago, and and the go-to guy was uh, John Conboy. He was our executive producer, sole executive producer. Um, I think Bill was creator, head writer, and not executive producer at that time. And um, so I really didn't get to know him until he moved out um, with his family. And uh, when he did, I took... Uh, he and Lee and all the kids, because they were kids, to a place in the valley called uh, Booyah Base. That's all they served, and they had opera singers as waiters. So that was really the first time that I had one-on-one -on -one time with the family and socializing, and and uh, it was a great evening. And then the rest was... Uh, um, he, uh, I was a trusted confidant. I mean, he would, uh, he would only remember character names. So at parties, he'd grab me and I'd, uh, uh, tell him what their real names were <laughs> because that was his, uh, that's how he saw everybody. So he didn't really, the only, the only time he didn't was in a, you know, the Christmas party or the anniversary party or, uh, um, that was the only time he really was interacting with all of us all at once. So it was, it was, uh, I mean, he was like my TV, my TV dad, my showbiz dad. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he'd, uh, if I had known now what I did then, I would have been, uh, much more aggressive in 
talking to him about how he comes up with stuff and uh, how he made it work so smoothly, how he, you know, created his own little empire there within the, uh, the powerful network of CBS. And, and uh, he, um, uh, he would come in, I think he would wake up like at 3.30 in the morning and <clears throat> he'd be walking in at 6.30 or 7.00 with all these notes he had written on napkins or, you know, so pretty much he was, uh, his mind was always on the show. I had uh, uh, visions of him Christmas morning with the family, his family and using his red pen to f sketch out ideas while the kids were opening, opening presents. I mean, Laura, can probably uh, uh, tell you that his mind was pretty much on the show. Um, partially all the time. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty incredible to, to work in that environment. And it was, uh, I mean, they call it family now, but it's nothing like it used to be. I mean, it was, uh, you know, you've got a, you've got a problem. There's one guy who's going to either solve it or tell you to fix it. And that was Bill. I mean, um, I think we have what seven producers now and, uh, of, I don't know how they make decisions, but I don't think they do it alone. So he was the one guy that, um, um, yay or nay, you know, do this or do that. And that was pretty much, uh, and that was it. He hated to talk about anything about storyline. Um, so people learned pretty quickly that if you came with an idea about story, he'd, uh, he closed that book really quick. <laughs> Are you one of the people who learned that, Doug? <laughs> well, no, actually, I wasn't, but I I saw it happen. <laughs> and you because, learned your lesson. And and I, I I've often said that. Well, what would you when people ask me what what I see happen? Um, it, I never thought in those terms um, because uh, it was always well thought out and. He was very specific about what he was after in, in particular scenes. So my job was to figure out what, what it was to make, uh, to make sparks during that, that one scene or that one episode where it was leading to something else. There was a time when I was given my first uh, PI office, and it was like a Sam Spade kind of place. You know, Paul Williams, private investigator on the, on the bathroom glass on the door and the uh, and I had a bunch of file cabinets in there. And in the file cabinets were his reams and reams and reams of files that were his first drafts. And it was all caps. And it was from uh, uh, one corner of an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper all the way down to the bottom. Wow. And it was all these. And it was pretty much verbatim of what the script turned into. But it was not script form or anything, but it was one man, one typewriter. I think he had that IBM Selectrix or whatever that that was, and it was just filled. And uh, you know, when I started looking at it and and uh, showing people how accurate his his first draft was, as opposed to what we ended up with, they. Uh, Thought it better to get all the scripts out of there and, and <laughs> take his uh, take his stuff out of the sets. And, but I, I thought it was fascinating. To see. It was almost like a stream of consciousness. That's um, so cool. And and he, yeah, he had the whole the whole show mapped out in his head. I mean, when I spoke to him about the transition between uh, uh, an hour, a half an hour, and uh, an hour. I think he always felt that a half hour was the perfect format for a, a, a soap opera as a novella like this. And uh, the first thing he did when he started was um, he just doubled everything. So a three-page scene became a six-page scene, and five-page scene became a ten-page scene. And then he realized in the in the early transitional years that it was better broken up. Uh, 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 differently. And I think we all kind of hit our rhythm somewhere around 85, 86, 87. And, uh, and so with it, uh, our viewership began to grow and, you know, peaking whenever it was, uh, 
88, I think. Or well, what, Paul was like very busy throughout the uh, the 80s. And uh, yeah. obviously his relationship with Lauren and Paul unwittingly becoming a, a nude centerfold springs to mind. Do you right. have a favorite storyline from that era or a memory of that storyline? Um, I, I, I remember that um, uh, Tracy had a, a whole different storyline. And um, at one party, Bill came up to me and he goes, you know, on a whim, I'm putting it, the two of you together. <laughs> wow, cool. And, and uh, I'm going, really? <laughs> I think she was, I don't remember, was it Michael Damien? There was a... There was a, a strike there was a period triangle in there yeah, with it was her, Beth Maitland. Yeah, yeah, and then and then uh, then we got this uh, apartment with the bike on the wall and the, I mean the whole I thing. I remember that um, apartment. <laughs> and so it just kind of blew up, where it was, didn't exist one day, and then the next day it was. Uh, um, he liked what he saw and he kept writing it. And, you know, I think Mel was, uh, at the same time, you know, she was stripping and that, that, that thread was going, uh, in the Victor Newman direction. And the, uh, uh, April thing was, uh, it come to a climax and he moved. So it was really, uh, it was, I guess it made more sense to him than it did to me at the time. Cause I thought, wow, we're so different. You know, she was uh, uh, so glamorous, and Paul was like, you know, he was a former uh, uh, gas station when they had gas station attendant. Uh, but I was a mechanic and a gas station attendant in the in the beginning. Um, so it, it seemed like an odd an odd pairing, but I guess, heck, we were to uh, we were together until. Uh, just before the Cassandra Rollins. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you mentioned Paul's parents, um, who were played by Brett Hadley and the late Carolyn Cronwell. Um, I loved those scene, any scenes you had with them. They were just always such a joy to watch. Um, what are your memories of them and your relationship with them? What was that like? They were and are uh, remarkable people. We spent so much time together. Uh, they were warm, collaborative, loving, uh, terrific I mean, we really, um, it, it felt like, a, it felt like a family. It, it saddens me to, to think that there was no real ending. Carl lost his memory and got married to another woman. And I mean, it got kind of, uh, um, you know, he didn't come back. So he stayed in Norfolk without his memory. And, and, uh, so there was no, there was no family conclusion. Mm-hmm. And that was that was the end of that. I think Mary stayed around and uh, um, was meddling Mary by that time. Yes, um, she was not a but fan in the beginning, of any women in was, Paul's life. <laughs> yes, <laughs> in the beginning it, it was uh, it was more of a family unit. Mm-hmm. Um, another of your co-stars who you mentioned during that time was Stephen Ford. Um, those were always such great, like buddy scenes with. Yeah, the two of them. You know, yeah. What is that? What do you remember and, about and, that dynamic between Paul and Andy? Uh, I I think because um, it was an environment where if if people didn't get along, there was usually a, a, a perhaps a bad apple every now and then, and and Bill would very quietly um, uh, write out the bad apples. So there was a there was a fluidity between the uh, the actors, and I, I have to say, if you worked tightly with someone, uh, you you got to know them. And and I mean, this goes with with everybody I've ever worked with there. Um, that you become close, and they uh, it's it's relationships that are uh, built over time that that never never go away, and. Uh, uh, May 19th of this last year, um, Cindy and I were up in uh, San Luis Obispo because Steve got married and, you know, we talk maybe two or three times a year, but, uh, you know, it's, it's that solid, um, 
you know, he was in my wedding too. I was, I was a guest at, at his, but it was much smaller and much, much different. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, I think it's his first marriage and I think he's what, what 63. Something How like amazing. Good for <laughs> yeah, him. Yeah. yeah. If, if my memory serves. So I yeah, we're, I mean, we'll pick up the phone and it's like, uh, no time has passed. Oh, I love that. So yeah, it, it's, um, and it, it all develops over working on the script and spending time together, having lunch. And, you know, we, uh, um, became friends with his then girlfriend and we visited his parents in Palm Springs and, you wow. know, it just, it, it developed into, um, a, a real relationship. So it was a pretty easy transfer to, uh, to the buddies on, on screen. Well, Doug, when I became a daily YNR viewer was when Paul and Cassandra were put together it is my favorite, favorite YNR storyline ever and what got me so hooked. So you have to indulge my Paul and Cassandra super fandom and tell me what you remember about that storyline and working with Nina Arvison and then brand new to soaps, uh, Mark Derwin, who was the bad guy, Adrian. Yeah. Uh, well, we didn't know he was the bad guy at the time. No, we didn't. And he, he came in later and, and I'm, I'm forgetting the name of uh, Cassandra's husband. George Rollins. Well, yeah, but uh, the actor. Oh, the actor. It's not popping into my head either. Okay, well maybe it will hold on. So it was um, it was a rebirth for Paul, and he was he was uh, Bella decided that he was taking um, uh, the the juvenile lead, the juvenile male lead, and making him uh, an adult male lead. So uh, we lost the old um, office, uh, got a whole new wardrobe. Suddenly Paul's office was uh, corporate and on uh, the 10th floor of Newman Towers. And um, he, he was developing this whole new um, uh, story. And it was the first time that I was let into um, what he was building. I was in on the casting of uh, Cassandra and it was, it was a whole different, it was, it was all adult. Paul had a gold card now and you know, he was in a new building successful. And uh, then he had this, this whole mystery plan with Cassandra. So it was definitely as far as uh, character of Paul goes of departure from anything too phenomenal. And it was probably my first favorite story too. So I'm I'm right on with you. Excellent. We went. Um, he, he pulled out all the stops. We went to um, Bermuda and did remote stuff there toward the end. But I mean, he built two or three brand new sets. The the Rollins mansion, right? Which was uh, I think at the time it was the most expensive set in daytime. Um, so, I mean, he pulled out all the stops and, uh, it was well thought through. It was, uh, you know, it was really the impetus, I think, that, uh, kicked the show into, uh, the number one position because they had ads in, uh, uh, TV guide. I mean, it was, it was a little juggernaut. And it was, uh, they fully committed to it, and we fully committed to it. It was uh, crazy exciting. Mm -hmm. Well, if you had a hand in casting that Nina Arvison, I owe you a belated thank you, because I just <laughs> loved it. <laughs> no, she was, she's, you know, and we, there's one instance where um, we lost touch, and I don't know, uh, I'm, I'm not sure whatever uh, uh, happened with her. But there are few people that I, I haven't seen or heard from. And she's one of them, actually. Wow. You know and I don't know if she's second. working or... Yeah. But that was great, too. She was a sweetheart. We, um, she was in every scene in, uh, uh, in Bermuda. So it was really 
it was really hard on her because uh, everyone else was, you know, as she changed looks and, and um, uh, you know, every scene she just, uh, Carl and I were, were lurking on the, uh, I think we were in, we were in, we were in disguise. I'm, I'm in retrospect, I might want to revise some of the disguise look, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I had a Three Stooges wig on with, uh, you know. Very uh, discreet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, so, and it was at the Elbow Beach Hotel. I don't know if there's, it's still there, but I mean. They had, uh, there are stories of where they had this Baccarat vase. She was supposed to see the reflection in the, uh, and I was dead at the time. She was supposed to be a reflection of, at the, at the jewelry store, uh, glass case, and then drop the, uh, and I think it was like $20,000 for this vase. So I... I recently talked to the guy whose responsibility was to catch the face and keep it from breaking. <laughs> <laughs> and he told me this story and I went, oh my God. But he was lying there on the floor on his back and he had to catch this uh, incredibly, incredibly valuable vase, and, uh, which he did time and time again. And then, you know, they were able to break the, the phony one. Oh my God! That's but crazy. I mean, it was it was all designed so well, and it had to be shot well. And I think some of it is still uh, is still on YouTube, so you can see how uh, we had speakers in her room, uh, Cassandra's room, so I could talk to her from beyond. <laughs> and I mean, it was this whole thing of uh, uh, driving her crazy, so she would become unstable, and and uh, it was remarkably creative. Well, I know Mara, uh, she remembers every scene, so <laughs> she definitely does not need to go on YouTube. I'll say that. But maybe, maybe yeah, from time it, to time I have. Yeah, maybe she might have taken a deep dive there. Um, well, it, I, and I think, it, I, I mean, I saw it a few years ago, parts of it, and it holds up. It was just uh, it was super it was a great story. Um, yeah, very, very really, smart. Really terrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I remember being surprised when Paul was first paired with Christine, who is played by Laura Lee Bell. Um, and that's a relationship that has now endured for decades. Um, so tell us about yeah, working I, with Laura Lee and that pairing for you. Another well, location it, wedding, it, or yeah. like a location wedding for that one, right? A location it was, honeymoon, it was a right? pa- honeymoon, yeah. It, it was a it was a pairing first, um, and I think uh, Michael Damien was doing. Uh, was that the Joseph? <laughs> Joseph was, I don't know. And I think he had to, he left the show to do that. So Laura Lee and I were working. Um, there was a, uh, an old age home and, uh, uh, um, uh, she was already a lawyer, I think. And there was a, uh, uh, Lord or something, uh, with all these old people. So we were the young group trying to save the, uh, the old people from being kicked out of their homes. And so it was really more of a, a business pairing before it turned into uh, a romance. And then, yeah. Uh, uh, so that kind of evolved too. Um, and, and there again, you know, we became uh, uh, really close friends and it, it it's funny how you get older when you're, I don't know what our age difference is, but it's, Maybe it's twelve years or something. I don't know. And it it become it's very significant when you're in your twenties, but not so much when you're in your. 50s. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, I did the family thing before she did the family thing, but it was still fresh enough in my mind to uh, give advice and uh, you know heads up on things that were going to happen and and. Uh, so that too developed into a um a really deep friendship that uh just isn't going to go away. Um and then oh, I'm trying to think we had we had some pretty cool sets where we lived uh two that I I remember and uh uh then Michael came back and let's see Phyllis was involved in there with the whole the whole Nevis thing and the the hitting, uh, we got run yeah, over. The hit and, and run, uh, and there was like a, yeah. you know, sea life in the bed. You, you really went through it. Yeah. With her. 
Right. I remember it was freezing, and we were in Pittsburgh uh, as Genoa City, and we had been been hit by Phyllis. We we can't move because they're doing shots, and the bodies have to remember it being the same position. And I remember my face on the frozen street, and I was doing um, the nighttime version of The Price is Right at the time, and it was miserable, and it was miserably cold. We were wet, and our bodies were within close proximity, so I could whisper to her, and I said, you know, come on down sounds pretty good right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well i was just gonna say and then you know talking about it then you uh especially with the retro shows they've started to do with mel and peter and uh, i think uh eric's is uh coming soon that when you see things it'll spark memories that you had forgotten about or you know i was talking to mel on thursday and i was saying how it doesn't really feel like 41 years. It feels like a, a period of time. But when you break it down with a calendar, it's an amazing amount of time that uh, the three of us have spent in in one place. I mean... It's extraordinary, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's pretty amazing. Um, well, tell us about um, your relationship with, with Melody because... It does go back to the early days of of Paul, um, and I was trying to remember, but I think if memory serves, on our podcast, she she said that she first you know exposed her relationship with Ed to the rest of the cast at your wedding when when they came together. That's a lot of history. Oh, there. Yeah, that is that is that is true. She, um, huh? It is. Uh, I'm. <laughs> There was so much going down with the show and me at the time of her, her um, 40th anniversary. But um, I made a point to uh, uh, to be there. And I don't think she, she knew about it. And um, when our eyes locked and somebody caught it on, on, it was just like suddenly it was all 40 years uh uh, flashing uh, in in front of you, because then it, it uh, our our lives together, um, although running parallel. I mean, the private lives were totally separate, but everything else ran parallel. It was like it all came together in uh, in that moment, and I can't I can't really recall anything that was. Um, so emotionally full in in an instant than that moment was. Wow. I know and, the photo you're talking and, about yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can see, you can, you can see her, see her face. I don't know if you can see me or not, but you can see her face. It's just, it, it's just uh, um, so full. And believe me, it was completely uh, uh, mutual. We're hugging, we're hugging in front of the, the group there and mm-hmm. it, 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 there is so much history there. I mean, she's, uh, you know, all her kids and all her, everything came after, uh, uh, I think everything pretty much that came into her life was after she joined the show that it still remained. Yeah. They, uh, we did our, our, our wedding on a weekend and I, I wanted to get married on a Sunday rather than a Saturday. And so, and I think it was Memorial Day weekend, and we did it up in Santa Barbara, and uh, it was a great weekend. And yeah, it was the first time that uh, they were publicly seen together, and and that lasted the certainly the test of time. That was mm-hmm. over thirty five years ago. Yeah, everybody's so, still together. It's it's a Hollywood miracle. Yeah, it is a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well. Earlier this year, you were brought back to the show after a hiatus. Um, so what did that mean to you? And what did it mean to you to see the reaction from the fans and from your own castmates like Eric Braden, who championed you so heavily on Twitter? Well, there, there again, you so much of that goes unsaid. 
And, you know, all the drama behind the scenes, uh, you know, I can go into it, but it, it really doesn't. But in the, in the beginning, no one was supposed to know that I was taken off contract and, uh, and, you know, one thing left to another and pretty much you're, you're, you're pruned down to nothing and, uh, uh, people begin to notice. So I think the, the flashpoint was when they put Ray in my, my chair in my office and I don't think I had been on since this would have been September and I think my last episode was taped somewhere in mid uh, mid to late July so it had been a while and so I, I because it was such a constant it, it was more it was more of a, a, a personal suffering for me because I had known nothing other than the young and restless professionally for, I mean, pretty much for my entire adult life. So from like 21 on, it was, you, I had forgotten what I like to do, um, you know, between that and running a family and being with family, it, it, um, you know, there's no time for much, uh, much else. So it was, it was, uh, it was really hard uh, for me personally to uh, not have anything on the docket or not uh, not know what's coming. And uh, and when it became public, you're right, Eric was, uh, and Melody too, um, but not public. She did it uh, uh, in the cast meetings with the brass and, uh, and all that, I was later told. And... Um, the, the the viewers were so incredibly supportive, and then Eric uh, takes a stand, and so at that point it really didn't matter what happened because uh, I felt pretty confident I made a, a contribution to the the show that was uh, um, that would stand, and everything else was out of my hands. But the fact that and I knew it because we've been friends all along, but for him to be public about it was, uh, it just was, uh, warmed the cockles of my heart. Yeah. It was, and, and I, I gotta say that the viewers did and continue, uh, to be supportive and warm and kind and loving. And I mean, I, it's, um, it's really unbelievable. So I've I've kind of I'm kind of okay with whatever happens happens at this point because everybody's done uh, everything they can and you know it is uh, a new age. I don't know what the future holds, um, but uh, you know I, I I joked that there's not much difference between fired and retired. So the the two, the two <laughs> <laughs> kind of work hand in hand, you know. And I I don't know what they're trying to do or or where they're going or, uh, but from where I sit, it uh, it's uh, it's it's different than uh, uh, the path I think they, they might be taking. Well, I was just going to say how how remarkable it is that we're having this conversation at the tail end of 2019. 42, oh no, 41 plus, like in some change, years after you happened to pick Victoria Mallory right. up from work. Like how remarkable. Like yeah. what does it mean to you that you are the longest running actor on this remarkably long running show? Well, it makes me sad because it means Jeannie died. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, you know, she, she, um, um, and even now I think I've been, uh, she came on, um, uh, six months, uh, after the show premiered. So, um, the, the only, the only reason I hold that title is because, uh, um, she passed and I can't tell you what a, what a wonderful force of nature she she was too. I don't want, we didn't talk about her too much, but I, and I guess everybody knows. But it, just in case people don't, that 
I felt so incredibly close to her. And then after her passing, I realized that everybody felt the same way. So what a, what a remarkable uh, life that is to, to make everybody feel special and wanted and loved and cared for mm -hmm. that uh, she, was, she was capable of doing. She was remarkable. In terms of what you asked, really, was, you know, I don't know what you believe in, but there were two guys in my karate class, and I was driving taxi cab. So one, one took me out of, the, of the, the dark streets of L.A. and put me in a warm and cozy restaurant, and the other got me a job that, last, that has lasted 41-plus uh, plus years, as you put it. And then a chance meeting in the, uh, so I mean, I think there are, I think it says somewhere in the Bible where you can't live by sight, you have to live by faith. And I think that you don't always know why things are happening or, or, or what's around the next corner. And I think it's important to remain um, optimistic in terms of where wherever life is is or has taken you, because you never know what's around uh, the bend and what what comes next. Well, we thank you so much for joining us today, Doug. It was so much fun to take a trip down memory lane with you. My pleasure. And we bid you good packing and good traveling and happy happy new year. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll post pictures so you can. Uh, Tag along. See, yeah, uh, please do. Yeah. We love it. All yeah, right. And, and you can see that I wasn't lying about the kilt. <laughs> about the kilt. Yeah, put that kilt on, dog. You better have it in a photo. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a little known fact, I do know how to play the bagpipes. So. Oh, hey, you are ready to go then. Yeah, yeah I'm all set. Hey, thanks, you guys. Thank it's you my so pleasure much. Too. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, right, Doug. Okay. Have a great one. Bye. Right. Bye. Bye for now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Doug Davidson for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up an issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast.